0: 1 Samuel chapter 26. Let's read. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do this morning. is going to scare you to death. We're going to cover about seven chapters. Verse by verse. (laughs) No, we're not going to do that. Uh, we will be continuing our study in the life of David, and I think you will see that these chapters that we'll be sort of surveying today, and I hope that you will go home and at your leisure and convenience, sit down and read through them. Read the accounts of what I'm telling you. I'm going to give you a brief synopsis and then some words of application, but go home and read it for yourself and look at how the things, the situations, and circumstances developed to bring to an end the reign of King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 26, let's begin reading in verse 1. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Kabiah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hachilah, which is before Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having three thousand chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. 1 Samuel chapter 26 picks up the story where we left off last week. We, of course, dealt with David and his encounter with his dealings with the fool, uh, Nabal being his name, and how he eventually winds up married to Nabal's wife. After Nabal is stricken by God and dies, David spends and takes Abigail. For his wife. Now, that sounds like a very romantic thing to you ladies, I'm sure, but I don't think it was probably the reality of it was not as romantic as you might think. He, she was marrying a man on the run, a man whose life so often was hanging as we have seen by a very thread. And you'll notice in the last verses of First Samuel 25, in verse 41, she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine hand... <clears throat> Let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. I'll go serve you, and I will wash the feet of your servants. Takes a little bit of the romance out of it, doesn't it? The reality. All right, but we go on into chapter 26, and we find again that King Saul comes out into the area around the city of Ziph. The Ziphites offer once again to turn David in to tell Saul where he's hiding. And we find yet another incident. It's very similar to an early one that took place at Injidi when David and his men were hiding in the cave. And Saul went into the very cave in which they were hiding when David could have taken his life but spared him. We find a similar incident here. Saul and his army, 3,000 men, are all asleep. He's lying in the trench. Nearby is Abner. Abner, the son of Nair, was Saul's commander of his army. And he is lying nearby to protect his king, surrounded by these 3,000 men. In the night, David and his men creep close to the camp. And David asks, will anybody go down there into the camp with me? I'm sure some of them were looking around saying, what, what you fool, what are you talking about? Sneak down into the midst of a camp of 3,000 men. But, O Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, we'll be saying more about him. He was the same guy back earlier in the cave that said, David, see, the Lord's delivered him into your hand. Go kill him. Oh, Abishai says, I'll go. I tell you, these guys, Abishai, we're going to see in his brothers, they're the commandos. The Rambos of the day. I mean, just let me at them. I'm going. You know, let me in there. Let me at him. Well, he says, I'll go with you. And sure enough, David and Abishai creep down in the darkness into the camp of Saul. And they're all asleep. The Scripture says here that a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And they go and they see King Saul lying there in the trench. And up there by his head, there's a spear stuck in the ground. And Abishai says to David you just let me go get that spear and I guarantee you I won't have to stick him with it twice. I'll make it count. We'll be through. We'll be rid of him from now on. Let me do it. And David once again says, no, you're not going to do it. We will not lift up our hands against the Lord's anointed. Read read what he says here. Verse 9. 1 Samuel 26, verse 9. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not, For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David saith, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. In other words, God's going to take care of him one way or the other. Maybe he'll just strike him dead. Maybe he'll just let the day come that he's going to die on, or he'll go down in the battle and, and die. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. And so we read that they take the spear and the little canteen, we might say, of water. And they go up on the hillside. I'm sure it's just beginning to become twilight, still dark. And David begins to holler down. Down there in the valley below were Saul's army, and he awakens them with his crying. And he's crying out to Abner. He's saying, what kind of commander are you? What kind of soldier are you? You're supposed to be protecting the king. And, and look, I've got his spirit. I've got his crews of water. Why, you ought to be put to death for not protecting your king any better than that. And Saul begins to cry out. He recognizes the voice. David, is that you? My son, is that you? And David again shows him the evidence The spear in the cruise of water showing that he could have easily have taken his life had that been his desire. The very thing that Saul was accusing him and jealous of him about. And you'll notice that Saul down in verse 21, then said, Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more do thee harm because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Saul again makes a confession of the ridiculousness of what he's doing. The fact that he's singing against God and trying to slay David. Oh, go ahead. Go in peace. I'll not harm you anymore. How many times have we heard that now? Several times in these accounts where Saul is confronted with his sin and where he says, yes, that's right, but there is no ability in the heart of Saul to change his course of conduct. Pretty good example here of the inability of man. He wants to. He wants to do better. Just like the old drunk, you know. He's just so sorry. Sorry that he's so sorry. Sorry if what he's done, hurt everybody. But he cannot change the course of his direction of life. He cannot turn himself. He cannot repent. He cannot Create within himself a new nature. And we see that very clearly exhibited in the life of Saul. He certainly is not able to bring himself to rest in what God has ordained. Look down at the last verse of this chapter. 1 Samuel 26, verse 25. Then said Saul to David, Blessed be thou my son, David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place in other words david i know that god's intending to bring you into my place but he could not rest so oh, we sung that wonderful hymn a moment ago steve jesus i am resting resting come unto me and rest said christ and we see that there is this inability in the life of Saul to rest in divine providence will you say after all Look at what providence had marked out for Saul. No wonder he couldn't rest. God was taking the kingdom away from him. Going to kill him. Jonathan, same thing's about to happen to him. But oh, we've noticed the sweetness of Jonathan submitting himself to the will of God, whatever that be. So it is one of the marks of the Christian life, one of the marks of a relationship with God, is our ability to submit ourselves to whatever His providence sees fit for us. Remember the story of Madame Guyon in France, in prison for years. She was a French mystic, and there's a lot about her life that I don't recommend to you. But she, for years, was kept in a cell there, and she wrote this little poem about a canary. She said, I keep a canary in my cage, now that's you think about it, from the canary's point of view, that's pretty cruel. you know I keep this little canary in the cage and why do I keep that canary in the cage so that he'll sing for me. So he'll chirp his song. And she said, I'm God's canary. He's put me in his cage and I'll sing his praises. Now I tell you, that's bowing to divine sovereignty. That's finding a sweetness in the very afflictions that God brings upon us. And then we go on into chapter 27. Once again, we find David, very short-lived with Saul's repentance, on running for his life again. And we see in verse 1, David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. In other words, sooner or later, he's going to get me. There is nothing better for me that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hands. Once again, David goes over to the Philistines. A very unusual act, uh, we would say at the very least. But he shows you why, the reasoning, there's simply no other alternative. There's no other place where I'll be safe from Saul. In other words, you could say, "What the Philistines are going to do is an unknown. What Saul's going to do is a known." All right. So between the two, I'm going to take my chances over there. They might put me to death, but maybe not. And sure enough, this time King Achish of Gath receives him joyfully and gladly. I think there's been a lot of time that has trend, a lot of water under the bridge since that time that David let the spittle dribble down his beard and played the fool there before King Achish. Certainly, the Philistines are cognizant of this little internal warfare that's going on over there in their neighboring nation, Israel. He's heard of the exploits, no doubt, of David. And this time, David brings with him an army of about 600 men. So this is quite a coup for King of Gath for King Akish. It's sort of like when we have one of these Russian defectors back in the Cold War would come over to our side, quite quite a trophy here of someone who is going to come over to us and be on our side against our mutual enemy. And so King Akish no doubt fears that he's very much the advantaged by the appearance of David and his men. Now they will align themselves and align themselves against this common enemy, King Saul. After a while, David asks King Achish for a place to dwell. He says, it's not right that we should live here in Gath in the royal city with the king. Assign us a place where we can live. And so King Achish gives him the city of Ziklag. Z-I-K-L-A-G. Ziklag. If you consult your maps, you'll find that Ziklag was over on the border area between the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah, the land of Israel, where Saul was hunting David. It's one of those border cities. And he gives David and his men that place in which to dwell. And so David promises to go fight the battles for them. And indeed, he does go fight, but not against Judah, not against his people. He goes down instead, down what they call the way, the road to Shur, was one of the roads into Egypt. And he would fight there against all these enemies that had been there from day one, all these sort of Canaanite peoples, the Amalekites, all of these peoples on that road between the land of the Philistines and Egypt. And then he would come back and he'd kill them everyone. He'd kill everybody in town. Wipe them all out so there'd be nobody to tell King Achish what he's up to. And so he would go back to Ziklag and Achish would ask him, okay, where you've been raiding today? And he'd go, oh, I've been raiding up here in Judah. I've been raiding... You know, it's, Judah was where he was from. That was his people. Oh, I've been raiding this place and this place. And David would bring him all this booty and spoil back from the battle. And King Achish, just happy to death, he's saying, you know, look at all these battles he's fighting for me and winning. Look at all this stuff he's bringing me. And surely he is making himself abhorrent to his own people. He's sealing his own fate. He's raiding his own nation. And surely they'll have nothing more to do with him. In fact, Akish. Look in verse 12 of chapter 27. Achish believed David, saying, He hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore, he shall be my servant forever. Well, he was deceived. David deceived him. guess we could talk a little bit about that. Is it right to lie to an enemy? I posed the question one time to some of my Christian brethren is it right on a Christian football team to fake? <laughs> I think the very nature of the game demands it. The same thing is true in warfare, that if we have an enemy, it is understood that we're not going to tell the truth to our enemy. The nature of the game demands it. Anyway, let's leave that behind. Go on into First Samuel chapter 28. Now we find the Philistines massing themselves for an attack. On the nation of Israel comes the time for a massive all-out assault on Israel and on the army of King Saul. And King Saul, we learn in the first verses of chapter 28, is unable to obtain any word from God. Samuel, the prophet that had been his close counselor and advisor, at least in his early years, is now dead and gone. There's no dream from God. There is no word from God. And so he is desperate to know what he's supposed to do. We find that the the battle is to take place up in the northern area and much further north than where we've been talking about. Uh, The Israelites are over on a mountain called Mount Geboah. Down in the middle is the Valley of Jezreel and the Philistines camped on the other side. And uh, Saul is absolutely desperate to find out what's going to be his lot in the battle. And so we learn that he begins to inquire, is there a witch in the land? Now, by a witch, what he means is what we would call a medium. That is, the King James says, puts it in these words, one who has a familiar spirit. Now, what we're dealing with is what is sometimes referred to as necromancy. Necromancy. It is the act of seeking to communicate with the dead. We sometimes see that or hear about it using a medium to try to be a spokesman for a departed loved one. You're trying to get in contact with their spirit. It is absolutely forbidden by the law of God upon penalty of death to involve oneself in that kind of activity. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 28 here that Saul, in verse 3, had put away, he had driven out of the land or put them to death, all these who were mediums or wizards, wizard being another form of a witch, someone who casts a spell or through black magic or white magic tries to induce certain things. Saul himself had driven these people out of the land and now Saul. Is asking, is there some witch, some medium out here that we can inquire of? And his men mention there, well, there's this one woman over at Endor. And so they go to visit her in the night. He disguises himself, shows up at her house. And, of course, she's very cautious. Uh, She's got the idea that they're out to find out if I'm a medium. And if they learn that I am, they're going to have my head. But they convince her to uh, play the part of a medium. She asks Saul, who do you want me to bring up from the dead? And he says, Samuel. Bring Samuel up. Now, there is some question about whether did she actually bring Samuel up from the dead. Uh, in most cases, or all cases, necromancy contacting supposedly these spirits of one's dead, departed loved ones is nothing more than having communication with demons, demons masquerading. We could go into that at great length, but I hope that will at least solve the problem for you of what goes on in those circles when there is this supposition of some spiritual power taking over the medium and speaking out as if he is your dead, departed loved one. It's nothing more than a demon taking over that person. That's clearly taught elsewhere in the Word of God. But in this case, it appears to me that it was not a demon. It was Samuel that was brought up. I don't think this was what the woman thought was going to happen, nor what she intended. She is greatly surprised if you'll read the account. She is shocked, scared to death, and that's what convinces her, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Hey, you're Saul. I mean, this is Samuel. Wait a minute, this is Samuel. And you are Saul. And we find that Samuel, it certainly appears to be Samuel from the account, begins to tell Saul what's going to happen on the next day. Look at 1 Samuel 28, verse 15. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore have I called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me? Seeing the Lord is departed from thee, and is become thine enemy, And the Lord hath done to thee, as he spoke by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thy hand, and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines, and so forth. So you see that the message from Samuel was that, um, turn out the lights, the party's over. Tomorrow you're going to get yours. God will deliver you. He's going to deliver your sons. He's going to deliver Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Well, we go on into chapter 29, and we find the Philistine princes, these other, you remember I told you that the Philistine, the land of the Philistines, you'll, sometimes see it in Scripture as under the heading of the five cities of the Philistines. Dare I give us a test this morning of the five cities of the Philistines? Or have already given you one, Gath. Zick-Lag. No, Ziklag wasn't one of the royals cities. There. there were five big cities. That was a Philistine city, but not one of the five. What was that? No, sounds like it ought to be, but Gath, was the first uh, over in israel they're having conflict over a period of strip of land called the gaza strip the city of gaza ashkelon ekron and one more that escapes me what was that ashdod yes the fifth All right, those five cities comprised the big cities. The princes of the Philistines were the head of those five cities. And Achish at Gath was head over them all. Well, these other princes of the Philistines begin to balk. They're about to go to war against Israel. And here's David with his 600 men coming up in their ranks. You know, you can sort of all see them filing up there to the battlefield. And the princes of the Philistines say, now, wait a minute. What are these guys doing? You know, this used to be Saul's servant. And we just have the hunch that this guy might try to reconcile himself to his former master with the heads of our men. We don't trust this guy. And Achish says, now wait a minute, this guy's been very loyal to me, very faithful to me. I found no fault in him whatsoever. But the Philistine says, look, if he's going, we're not going. And so Achish has to tell David, David, turn around, go back. You can't go. I found no fault in you and all of that, but my princes, my army will not fight if you're there with me. So David must turn around, take his men, his army, back to the city of Ziklag. And what we learn in chapter 30 is that while all of this is going on, you see while the Israelites and the Philistines are all occupied up here with their battle up their way in the north, as I was describing to you, the Amalekites come from the south and attack in other words, they've got all their men up there fighting the battles. They've just left women and children back in their cities. So the Amalekites see this as an opening, and they attack. And among the cities they attack is none other than the city of Ziklag. They burn the city with fire, and they take captive David's two wives at this point, Ahinoam and Abigail, that take all the families captive as slaves, and they start back to Egypt. So David and his 600 men come over the hill expecting a nice warm welcome from home folks and they come over the hill and the city is utterly burned and destroyed and all their possessions carried off and their families taken away. You can imagine what went on, all the weeping and wailing that it speaks of here. But we were, in fact, David's men, well they want to stone David to death. Look at verse 6. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David, here's another little insight into his character, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest of Emelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod and Abiathar brought hence the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue. For thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. In other words, God's direction is, David, go go get them. Go after them. You'll catch up. Now, see, this is quite a situation. All they know is the city's been burned. Their family's been carried off. But where have they been carried off to? Where did this group go? Where did these raiders take them to? This is sort of like looking for a needle in a haystack. But God says, yes, pursue them. You'll catch up to them. You'll recover them all. And so we learn that they strike out southerly. And they come out in the middle of the desert upon an Egyptian wandering around out there. And they take this guy. He's about dead. Been out there for three days without food and water. They take him into their camp, give him a little nourishment. And they ask him, uh, who are you? And he says, well, I'm I'm an Egyptian, but I'm a slave to an Amalekite. And a few days ago, you see, we went on this raiding party and we raided up into Israel. And we raided over into Judah. And we raided up into the Philistines area. And we raided Ziklag and burned it down. And David says, can you take me to where they're going? And he says, well, yeah, if you will promise not to kill me, I'll take you there. So sure enough, this fellow that they capture again, well, wasn't this a lucky break, captured this guy out here in the middle of the desert, used to be in the raiding party. They left him to die. He got sick on his master, and they just threw him out in the desert to die. But David just happens upon him, and he knows where they're headed. And so we learn that David and his men come upon this camp of the Amalekites as they're in the midst of their rejoicing and so forth. And David knows what to do with Amalekites. Saul didn't know what to do. David knows what to do. From the twilight of the evening till the next day, he started killing them. And we find that the only ones that escaped were 400 that escaped upon some camels and he recovered all of the spoils that the Philistine I mean the Amalekites had taken in their raids recovered his wives recovered their families and so there is great rejoicing while that's going on down south the Philistines attack the army of Saul up north on Mount Gaboa chapter 31 gives you the account of what happened That the Philistines were victorious in the battle, and one by one, three of Saul's sons were slain. Jonathan slain. And as Saul saw, that's tricky, Saul saw. the course of the battle, Saul, that it was about to be all over, he calls upon his armor bearer to run him through, to thrust him through with the sword so that he not fall into the hands of the Philistines. He knows, of course, that he will be brutally tortured and treated were that the case. But the armor bearer is fearful of doing that, so Saul takes his own sword and falls upon it, attempting to commit suicide. We find the next day the Philistines go through the battlefield, stripping the dead, taking anything of value, and they come upon King Saul. They behead his dead body, and they take his body and the bodies of his three sons, and they take them up to the city of Basham, and they hang them over the walls of those cities as a trophy of their victory. A brutal day, wasn't it? Well, in Second Samuel chapter 1, David now has made it back to Ziklag while he's been occupied that way, the battle has been going on up at Mount Geboa. And one day a man comes wandering in from the hills. A man that's come out of the camp of Saul comes wandering into David's camp. He's been looking for David, trying to find him. This man comes in. He says, I was there. I was there at the battle. David says, what happened? He says, well, Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Two other of Saul's sons are dead. And I've come to tell you, David says, to him, wait a minute, how'd you know? And he said, well, I just happened to be there, and I saw Saul fall upon his spear to run himself through, but he didn't die. He was still alive. And he saw me, and he says, come slay me. Put me to death, still fearful of the Philistines. And so the man said, well, I stood over him, verse 10, I stood over him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after he was fallen. I knew he was going to die, so I went ahead and put him out of his misery. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and had brought them hence unto my Lord. I took his crown off and his bracelet off and I brought him to you. This fellow thinks he's going to get a big reward. And David says to his men, Kill him. How? Well, let's... Have, have you got the picture? We've run over a lot of ground, a lot of territory this morning. I've tried to sort of boil it down to to its essence. But what can we learn? What do we see in all of this? And obviously, we're sort of it's a different situations, but it's really the same story. Again, we come upon the life and the character of David being exhibited. We see that meekness that is so sweet about David, we see it once again exhibited in spite of the opportunity that he had to slay Saul, in spite of the instigation of Abishai saying, come on, come on, let's do it, let's do it, let's be rid of him. David simply will not lift up his hand against Saul. The point being, as he says to Abishai, perhaps God will strike him down. Perhaps he'll die in the battle. Perhaps his day will come to die. We've all got that day, by the way. God knows when it is. You and I don't know. But there is that day out there on which we're going to die. And David says, perhaps that'll be how it is. You see, what David is saying is, God will take care of Saul. This is God's man, and God will take care of him. He'll judge him. He'll take him out of the way. But I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Perish the thought that David should set David on the throne of Israel. If God wants me on the throne, then He can take care of Saul and He can put me there. My, what patience, what submission to the sovereign will of God. What would you have done? I don't even want to know what you'd have done if it had been me laying in the trench and you had the opportunity to put me... As we say, out of my misery, to finish my life off. Which one of us would have exhibited this kind of faith, this kind of confidence that God will take care of the situation, that all my times are in his hand, that he wants me on the throne, he can advance me to the throne. But God forbid that I should kill his man in advancing myself. And then there is a beautiful little capsule here where we see God, David's confidence in the sovereignty of Almighty God. You know, we say we believe in a sovereign God. We believe in the grace of God. Don't you? I mean, we say, I don't care who it is there, but by the grace of God, go I. Right? That's what we say. How do we live? Do we live consistently with that idea? Or do we deny the very truth and doctrine that we say we believe by the way we conduct our lives, by the way we treat other people? There is an interesting account back when David and his soldiers attacked the camp of these Amalekites and recovered the spoil and recovered their families. For you see, out of the 600 men that struck out out there in the desert trying to locate these Amalekites, 200 of them became so weary that they could not go on. They stopped by a brook. The brook's name was Bessor. And only 400 men were strong enough to keep going. They had been pressing after these Amalekites for apparently a long time. The 200 simply couldn't go on any further. They stayed at the brook, stayed there by the baggage, by the provisions of the army, and David took the other 400 and went and fought the battle and was victorious. And as they now are coming back from the battle Coming back with all the spoils of the victory, the herds and the flocks, the sheep and the goats and the cows that they had been able to take captive from the Amalekites. Back with the men's husbands and wives and families. Some of David's men said, now wait a minute. Why should these guys get of the spoils of battle? Why should they get a share? They didn't go fight. They didn't rest their necks. They were too tired to go on, too weary. We'll let them have their wives and their children back. They can have their families, but they're not going to get any of this stuff. Now, I want you to consider that for a moment. Who gives you the strength to keep going? You say, well, you know, they're too weak. They can't, they can't endure like I can. Who gives you the strength? To endure. Who gave you the victory in battle? Did you do it? You see, what these men are arguing might be well and good. It might be emphatically true and just if it was your strength that won the battle. If it's your strength that enabled you to could keep on when others couldn't. But if God did it, then you don't have a leg to stand on. Look what David says. First Samuel thirty. Verse 22, then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial, there's some of those in his outfit too, of those who went with David and said, because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have covered, save to every man, his wife, and his children, that we, he, they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us who hath preserved us and hath delivered the company that came against us into our hand. What gives you the right to decide what we're going to do with what the Lord has given us? And so David decrees that those who stayed back there at the brook get just as much as those that went and fought the battle. In fact, it says down here that that thing became a law in verse 25, a statue and an ordinance in Israel from that day. Why? Because it is a recognition of the principle that it is God who delivered the enemy into our hands. It is God who fought the battle. It's God who gave us the strength to prevail. It is an implicit, and it's interesting to me just how natural this kind of thing flowed out of the life of David. It's a natural understanding. Look, God did this, and we're not going to deny that by listening to what you guys are saying. He would not deny the thing that he believed. You know, it's easy to believe in all of this till we succeed. <laughs> till we overcome. And then what do we say? Well, you know, I did pretty good out there, didn't I? <laughs> you know, hey, you've know, got me. We make a pretty good team. No, you're nothing but a worm. All the glory and the praise and the honor belongs to God Almighty. Secondly, we see in this, again, the workings of God's sovereignty behind the scene, how He controls the events of our life. It is, again, many who say, oh, yes, I believe God controls the big, big things, you know, who's sitting on the throne, who wins the wars, but surely God doesn't control the the little bitty things. Uh, You know, by the way, it's those little bitty things where the rub comes from I remember a man and his wife the man said I make all the big decisions And this was back in the 60s or 70s I remember reading this story the man says I make all the big decisions in my family and my wife makes all the little decisions that I decide who's going to be president I decide whether we get out of Vietnam and she decides where we're going to live what house we're going to buy what car we're going to drive <laughs> But isn't that just like us? You know, God controls those great big things, but surely not the little bitty things. I want you to notice here, when David and his men were going out to battle with the Philistines, and these Philistine princes began to say to Achish, wait a minute, we're not going out to battle with this guy. I believe they're dead right. I believe they had David pegged. I believe I know David well enough to know what was in the back of his mind. Had he got out there in the battle Those Philistines better look out. But God providentially overruled. And doesn't this story about the Amalekites coming and raiding Ziklag, isn't that a little too neat for you? To just say that happened accidentally. You know, just one of those things that happened. Do you understand that that was God's way to divert David? from the battlefield. That took David as far away from Mount Goboa as you could get him at the very time that the battle's going on. Because I guarantee you, had not God done that, David would have been up there and he would have done his best to have indeed reconciled himself to Saul with the heads of those Philistines. That was not God's purpose. That was not God's will. And God working behind the scenes managed to overrule and to take David out of the picture for that little period of time. And then thirdly, let's close with Saul. What a sad, what a sad story. You ask the question, was he lost or was he saved? Difficult, difficult, isn't it? There's evidence both ways. I've heard it argued both ways. But I'll tell you this, that if you believe in the perseverance of the saints, you have a big, big problem with King Saul. It's sad because he has so much going for him. There was a humble streak in Saul at the first. Go back when he was selected. To be the king of Israel. His humility. Well, what am I in my father's house? Well, I'm from the smallest tribe. I'm from Benjamin, the smallest of all the tribes of Israel. But my friend, it doesn't last long. We see his cowardice, his lack of faith in intruding into the priest's office way back there at the beginning. You see, Saul just had this little problem. He could never find a place of rest. He just couldn't rest in God. Couldn't rest in God's will, in God's commandments. Couldn't rest in the fact that God was able. And so we find him either trying to improve on what God has commanded or directly violating what God commands. Driven by this insane jealousy of David and clinging, scratching, gnawing, clawing to try to hang on to this kingdom. And all the while, it is slipping away from him. There's not a thing he can do about it. But he just can't rest. And finally, we see that restlessness of his soul in his inquisitiveness of this witch, Dali Ender, taking part in an action that he himself had judged worthy of death. And yet now he stoops to inquire of, as it were, Satan himself when God will not speak. There is in the New Testament a principle that is oft quoted, oft noted. And it is this, that oftentimes God gives us prevenient grace, preliminary grace. He gives us some good gift. Oh, it's not saving grace, you understand, but it is often that which precedes saving grace. And if we do not make use of that grace, if we trifle with it, if we refuse to honor it, what happens? God takes it away from one and gives it to another. The scripture that's often quoted in the New Testament is that he takes from those who have so that they have. I'm sorry, I'm not quoting it right. He takes away from those who have not. And he gives it to those who have. Let let me have you read it just so you'll know I'm not making this up. It is the Gospel of Mark. (laughs) But it's there. Trust me. Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. Verse 24. Mark 4 verse 24. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet it, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear, shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, From him shall be taken even that which he hath. Christ is in the middle of his teaching ministry and he's saying to the crowds, be careful. Be careful what you do with the teachings, the truths that you hear. You say, oh, I can take it or leave it. Or I can go home and forget about this. And perhaps in a future day, I'll I'll get serious about this. Christ says, "Uh uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. for to you who have, you get more and more. to you it shall be given, but to you who hath not shall be taken away that which you have." And some of you may be sitting out there saying, "Wait a minute, how do, if you have not, how do you have taken away that which you have? Luke's gospel sheds a little light on that in Luke 8:18, 8, he repeats this and he says, "It shall be taken you who have not shall be taken away from you what you seem to have." You seem to have it for a little while. It looks like it's yours. It's in your hands. You say, well, can you give me an example of this? Oh, no better example can you have of the nation of Israel during the earthly ministry of our Lord. We've noted in our Monday night study how in about the midpoint of Christ's earthly ministry that he begins to take away from Israel what they had. Because of their unfaithfulness, he begins to condemn those cities that have seen the majority of his marvelous, miraculous works. He says if those things had been done in other cities, pagan cities, heathen cities, those people would have repented long ago. But you see it, and you see it again. You have me in your streets teaching and doing these miracles, and you still don't get it. Woe to you. And Jesus, little by little, begins to withdraw the light that had been given to Israel. From that point on, we've learned that he teaches in parables. Oh, he had taught in parables before, but this time he only gives the explanation to his apostles. And the apostles are astounded. Now, wait a minute. Why are you teaching in parables to the crowd, but you you give us the explanation? And he says to him, that hath shall be given, but he that hath not shall be taken away. That which he hath. You get it? Somewhere in here comes what the Scriptures call the unpardonable sin. I don't know where the line is. I don't know that any man knows. But I do know this, that what he's teaching is you don't trifle around. With the grace that God gives you, the grace, the preliminary grace, the grace of being under the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand the blessing of that this morning? Do you understand how lucky? and no, oh I don't speak of myself as a pastor or a preacher, God forbid, but that you should be in a church where the gospel is being preached. That you should have opportunity to hear. That it falls upon your ears. For Jesus said many wise men, many prophets have desired to hear the things that you hear and see the things that you see, and they didn't get to see them. And you want to play with them? Trifle? And so along with grace comes responsibility. You see it in that story about the talents being given to the three men. And what does he do? He goes and buries it. And when all is said and done, what's happened to him that hath not is taken away that which he has? Remember what he says? Take the talent away from him. Give it to the guy who's got ten. They say, wait a minute, he's already got ten. He's already got plenty. But the parable says, To him that hath not shall be taken away that which he seems to have. To him that hath, more and more is given. I guess we could say, spiritually speaking, this is saying what we say in the old southern colloquialism. You better make hay while the sun shines. Walk, says Jesus, while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can walk. You see, it's not exclusively a New Testament principle. We see that in the life of King Saul. Given so much, blessed with so much, and yet in the end, he lost it all. What he had was taken away and given to another. Do you think it's just an accident? There on the battlefield, Saul lying there, wallowing in his own blood. He even made a mess of killing himself. And he looks up and sees this fellow and says, come kill me. Put me out of my misery, lest those Philistines get me. And this guy says, I sure will. I'll be glad to. And Saul says, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite. Hmm. Do you think that was just accidental? Circumstantial? When it was the Amalekites that Saul had been given the commandment to slay them and slay them utterly in the commandment that Saul refused to obey. Wound up, slain by one that he should have slain. Do you understand the principle? You kill sin or it'll kill you. You quench rebellion or it'll quench you. You mortify the flesh or it'll mortify you. One or the other. Oh my, take pains. I leave you this morning. First Chronicles 10, another account. Verse 13. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of her. God killed him for those reasons. Oh, let his life, let the account of Saul be a warning to you and me. The New Testament simply says, let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Oh, on the one hand, we have the wonderful doctrines of assurance of salvation, eternal security, things that we glory in, my friend. But on the other hand, we have in the Word of God warnings like this, the life of a man unfolded before us as a warning. My friend, don't trifle with these things. I say that I know in some cases there are some here this morning that have said under the sound of these things, as long as you can remember, And still today, you trifle and you play with the things of God. You have in the back of your mind, I'm sure, one of these days, you know, I need to get serious about this. One of these days, I need to do something. I need to repent. I need to turn from the world. I need to seek Christ. One of these days, I know, and I intend to do it. But tomorrow, not today. Beware, lest what happened to Saul happen to you. The things of God are not to be trifled with. When grace comes and we do not use it, we do not, as the Puritans say, improve it, then grace is removed and the light goes out. There comes a day, and there's many who will tell you this once their heart, were tender towards the things of God and you say what about today I haven't thought about God in years never even crosses my mind you know them I know them let's pray help us to take these things to heart Father oh this is a sober story sobering to us and may it be so Lord, cause us not to trifle with the wonderful things that we know, the things that we have heard, the beauty of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Father, may we not convince ourselves that all will be well if we delay. We wait till tomorrow. Lord, it's not in our hands, not in man's power to redeem himself, to create himself anew. But, Father, you've given us responsibility to seek, to come to the one who can, the one who has the power to change us and make us new. Father, we read of those who once the bridegroom came and the door was shut, began to knock on the outside. Surely, Father, they could have knocked ahead of time. They could have knocked before then, before it was too late. Surely, Father, though we cannot save ourselves, though we cannot give ourselves the gift of life, surely, Father, we can camp out on the doorsteps of He who can. Lord, may You put that desire in the hearts of anyone today outside of Christ. Lord, may You draw by the power of the Spirit. May You convince. May You, Father, convict of the certainty of these things, the certainty of judgment. Father, if we will not believe it where You clearly state it, may we look back in the life of a man like Saul and see the unalterable course of the life of a man who does not bow, who does not find that place of rest. Lord, help us to rest our souls in Christ. May we come and learn of Him May we take his yoke upon him and learn that his burden is easy, his yoke is light. Help us today, Father. Speak to hearts according to our need. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.